0: Well, let's uh, turn again then uh, to Zechariah chapter four, and with God's help, let's look particularly at verse six in the chapter. Zechariah chapter four, and at verse six, where the angel says to Sarubabel, sorry, to Zechariah in the vision. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, to understand these words properly, we need to understand the context in which they were spoken properly. I've said a little about it, I suppose, before our singings and our readings, but I think perhaps I need to say a little more. Saharaya gets this vision around 16 years after the people have returned from their exile in Babylon. It was their sin that put them there into bondage, and their repentance took them out after 70 years. And tens of thousands of them returned, and when they came back to the promised land, we read in the scriptures that they returned with great joy. And we sang that in the psalm. We were like men that dreamed I'm sure at various times they had lost hope that deliverance would ever come. And when you're in the grip of Babylon, that's the way it feels. But when the deliverance came, they were like men that dreamed. And when they got back to the land of promise, the first thing they did was get to work in building the temple of God. Now, of course, they would have built temporary homes for themselves. They had to stay somewhere. But that wasn't their focus. Beautifying these homes well wasn't their focus. Their primary focus was in rebuilding the house of God. That is just communicating to us very plainly that what mattered most to these people was the Lord's cause, his worship, and the prosperity of that cause. That's what mattered most. But after 16 years, the building of that temple slowly ground to a halt. And there were three reasons for that, and I suppose we're all familiar with this, these reasons to one degree or another in our own spiritual lives. I'll say more about that later, but the reasons are these. First of all, there was the sheer difficulty of the work. Sometimes when a thing is thought upon. It's quite different from when it actually begins. To actually find yourself back in a land, to realize it's been wasted, it's gone back, it's filled with people who are half pagan, half religious. The city lies in dust and the temple of God hasn't a brick or a stone in it. It can be quite overwhelming. And even if you Get to the task with enthusiasm and energy sometimes the progress not being as quick as you expected well that can have its own effect you can lift up your eyes from the work that you're immediately doing and focus on the work that needs to be done and it looks so big we're making little or no headway we are building a temple but what about the land There's a land to be reclaimed and reconquered for the Lord and the task is so vast. And although there were tens of thousands who returned, there were also tens of thousands who didn't return. There were plenty of the people of God who decided that it was a better option to stay in Babylon rather than to return. That itself was demoralizing for the people of God who were really getting to the task of doing what God wanted them to do. I'm sure you've experienced yourself that sometimes a person who perhaps was close to you in the Lord or who fought with you or stood beside you in the Lord took an easy option when there was work to be done. How demoralizing that is for yourself. And perhaps what you expected to happen did not happen quickly. And hence, there is just a sense of being overwhelmed with the magnitude of the work that's to be done. Little done and so much to do. Connected with that, connected with the difficulty of the task, was the opposition they experienced in the task. That, I suppose, is something they didn't really expect, or at least not to the degree that they got it. Interestingly enough, a lot of the opposition came from people who first of all helped. Uh, we read that in the passage. They said, well, we're interested in this work ourselves. We really worship the same God as you do. Let's help you in building the temple. That was said by their half-brothers, the Samaritans, who had a kind of mongrel religion. Half of it was fine, half of it was not fine. And of course, Zerubbabel, And the Lord's people knew that that was what had caused the problem in the first place. It was that kind of mixture of the true and the false that had brought the land under the judgment of God. That's what had sent them into Babylon. And there was no way, having come back, that they were going to accept the offer of help from the very people who had caused the whole thing to go wrong in the first place. So they said, no. They said, we will build this temple, and we will build it God's way and we will do the work that he requires. But the effect that had on the people who offered their help was to make them angry. They became opposed. Sometimes they would ridicule the work, and that itself can be sore. You'll remember later when Nehemiah was building the wall of Jerusalem, Sanballat said, that wall is so precarious that if a fox runs up it, it's going to fall down. This kind of mocking and taunting. We're familiar with that, but sometimes the opposition was more difficult than that, writing former letters to the Persian Empire to try to stop the building, and they were successful in that, until God overturned it. But it's very difficult to encounter opposition, especially opposition from those who should know better, and that too can weaken our hands when we're doing the Lord's work it's difficult enough to do without it being opposed sometimes by friends the third thing of course that demoralised them was of course the devil himself and uh, he comes in with or without the world he will come in and he will use the flesh saying look this task is not just difficult but it's never going to happen You're trying to recapture something that was here a long time ago, but it's never actually coming back. And you may as well accept that it's coming back. Strangely enough, there was an element of this spirit when the very foundation of the temple was laid. You'll remember, of course, that when it was being laid, there was a shout of joy, which was almost universal, but not quite. Because some of the people there were crying rather than rejoicing. And they were crying because they remembered the glory of the former temple. And in their eyes the foundation that had just been laid of this temple was as nothing in comparison with the temple that they had seen. Which of course externally was true. That second temple was nothing like the temple that Solomon had built in its glory. And instead of having a sense of joy and anticipation and gladness, their overriding emotion was one of sorrow. And the spirit in that, well, there's a sense in which you could understand it. But you need to be very, very careful. It's one thing to remember the glory of a past day, And to recognize, perhaps, that it's not here in the present. It's another thing to move from that and to say, well, that's a glory that was and that won't be again. And interestingly, just as Zechariah was raised to preach to this people, so was Haggai, two men at the same time. And Haggai addressed this very point and said to them, don't despise the day of small things. Well, Zechariah says much the same who was despising the day of small things. The glory of this temple, Haggai said, shall be greater than the glory of the preceding temple. Never mind its dimensions. Never mind its external appearance. The glory of this temple, he said, shall be greater than the glory of the temple before. There must have been very few of these men who remembered the previous temple. They must have been children when they were taken into captivity and they had now returned as very old men and women. But they were prone to despair or prone to despondency. Now the danger of despising the day of small things is very great. I, I mentioned on Friday evening of the abduction service that We are living in a day of small things. And people say, well, you shouldn't say that. Well, of course you should say that if the days are small. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. it. It's what you do about the day of small things. It's how you view the day of small things. It's the effect that the day being small has on you. That's what matters. There's no point in pretending it's not a day of small things. Because it is. But despise it not. Despise it not. If you do, well you could say, "Well, how do you despise it? Well well, one day in, one way in which you can despise it is by just failing to recognize the wonder of what God is doing now. Perhaps because all you can think of is the past. So a single soul is born again, brought out of the power of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Do you rejoice at that? Do you recognize the glory of that? And the wonder of that? Even gathered here together today, is there not a glory to that? Is there not a wonder to that? Would it not be easy to say, "Ah, well, yes, but I remember when thousands gathered. Well, yes. And so, are these few not precious in the sight of God? May God not use these few... In a way that he never used those thousands, you say, well, maybe, but I don't think so. That's the problem. I remember Robert Murray McChane once felt that people didn't have a, a quickened sense of Christ's return, and he was in a small gathering, and he went round the gathering and he said, "Do you think the Lord could return tonight?" And they all said, "Yes." And then he said, no, do you think the Lord will return tonight, honestly? And they all said, no. It's a peculiar thing to hold something like that in theory, but for it not really to move or energize the heart. So it's one thing for you to believe that this gathering is as precious to the Lord as a thousand who gathered a hundred years ago. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that the Lord can do as much with a few today, as he did with many then? If not, you are despising the day of small things. You are not recognizing the power of God and that the glory of this temple can be greater than the glory of the temple that we all saw. I saw brighter days than these. There are people here who saw these days brighter (coughs) still before my day. But can God not make the glory of this temple greater than it ever was before? So as well as despising what God is doing now, that can lead you very much to doubting what God will do in the future. And perhaps those of us who are now getting on in age need to be careful that we don't discourage youth with that. There is a way of speaking about the past that is good. There is a way of speaking about the past that is not so good. It's not right to be Pouring a bucket of cold water upon the zeal and the enthusiasm of those who are seeing things for the first time. When they say, well, the Lord did this, and we say, ah, but I remember when the Lord did that. And that's quickly followed by, what you're seeing now is nothing in comparison to what I saw then. And very shortly afterwards, there's probably a shake of the head and say, we'll never see what we saw in those days. Do you see what you've done? Not only have you taken away from the wonder and glory of what God is doing in the present, you have taken away his promise in connection with what he will do in the future and you have destroyed the zeal and the enthusiasm of of a young man or a, a young woman in the Lord. Let not that be so. It's quite a sad thing that it was the older folk at the laying of the foundation of the temple who discouraged the youth. That's something that those of us who are getting on a bit need to remember don't despise the day of small things we must be careful not to but in any case after 16 years the work ground to a halt and interestingly Haggai tells us that the people started to beautify their own houses and to focus on their own lives You'll remember how Haggai had to rouse the people away from their panelled homes and back to building the temple of God. That is just a a picture, really, of people who have shifted their focus off God and onto themselves and how they need to shift the focus back from themselves onto God. And you are the best. Well, I don't know if you're the best judge. In some ways, you're the only judge As to whether that is true of you. Whether there was a focus. On the Lord in your life. That has gone. Whether there was a a focus on his church. And on his cause and on his people. That has gone and has been replaced. By a house and a car. And a pension and whatever else. Even your own family. Even your own family. But yourself. And your things. Not the Lord. And his things. And gradually everyone lost heart. Even Zerubbabel and Joshua themselves. And Zerubbabel felt with the plumb line in his hand that there was no one really left interested in the work. And when he thought about continuing the temple and conquering the land it was like looking at a mountain. A huge mountain that couldn't possibly be shifted except, of course, for what the Lord said. Who are you? Verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone, which is the finishing stone of the temple, with shouts of grace and grace to it. Sometimes when you look at the opposition against us, the size of the, ta- size of the task. Stornoway, Lewis, need to be rebuilt. Scotland needs rebuilding. The magnitude of that task is absolutely overwhelming. And the opposition to any man or woman who puts his or hand to it is absolutely overwhelming. Even if, if you open your mouth sometimes on the Lord's time, you're told to shut up. It's not welcome, it's overwhelming. And sometimes you look at the Lord's people who who should be so interested and so concerned and so enthused with the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of the land and they're busy doing something else. It can all feel like a mountain and maybe your own hands weaken too. But the Lord raised up Haggai and Zechariah and their messages are the same. And the message of this A particular vision in chapter 4 is essentially saying that the mountain is there all right but the mountain can be moved. It can be moved. And it can be moved by all of us if we just remember how it is to be moved. The Lord famously said after he had withered a fig tree and the disciples were amazed at the withering of a fig tree overnight the Lord said Faith, he said, can accomplish this. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, be removed and it shall be removed for you. A fiery grain of mustard seed, small but alive, that kind of faith that really lives and works and takes hold upon God, even a grain of such faith can remove an enormous mountain. That is essentially what Zechariah is being told here, that the mountain shall become a plain, but there is only one way in which that can be done. And that is where the lampstand comes in. Now, of course, at the center of this vision is the lampstand with the seven lamps. If you know your Bible well, you'll know that a lampstand is a common description of God's Church. Uh, The seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation are seven lampstands. The golden lampstand in the tabernacle represented the Church of God. And here this golden lampstand too represents the Church of God. There are sevens all over the place. There are seven lamps. There are seven pipes coming to the seven lamps. A reminder to us that this is a, a complete picture of the whole visible church of God on this earth. Forget the details of the lampstand for the moment. I'll come back to the lamps and the bowls and so on just in a second. But just focus on the main thing, and that is the lamps themselves. The lamp has one function, simply to shine. And the seven lampstands are there to shine. And the Lord has lit his candle, or he's lit his lamp in all our hearts as the Lord's people. And in every congregation where the Lord's people gather, there is a lamp lit. And of course our function is to shine as lights, as Paul says to the Philippians, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. This world is shrouded by nature and darkness, the darkness of sin and the darkness of ignorance. And the Lord has lit a lamp in our own hearts to shine. And there are two ways in which we shine. We shine... First of all, by speaking the truth. Holding forth the word of life. And we speak the truth of God into the ignorance and the unbelief of this word. It needs to hear you speak about God and about Christ. You can be a living letter in that way yourself. Speak, witness, testify. Without that, there is no knowledge of God in the lives of men, women and children who are perishing in that ignorance and darkness. Speak it out. We speak forth the truth. The second thing we do is we practice the truth. And that is just as important. In fact, without it, the speaking is pointless. Let your light so shine before men, Jesus said. And here his reference is not to her speech, but to her conduct. Let your light so shine before men that they may see, see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let the life that you live and the way that you live it the priorities by which you live and conduct yourself on a Sabbath day, on a Monday, and on a Saturday. Let your life so shine that they see the good works, the difference, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Obviously, the life you live, as well as the speech you speak, is being loved in such a way that doesn't illuminate yourself it illuminates the God who has made you to differ to differ from who and what you were before speak the truth and live the truth that is the function of Christians and of churches that is the lampstand and that is the lampstand that Zechariah saw now the problem here is that the lampstand is not burning properly. The Samaritans could look at them and say, oh, well, they started with enthusiasm, but look at them now. Or see these Christian people who came back from Babylon. They're no different from us. They're building their houses, they're getting on with their their lives, they're extending their farms, they're adding farm to farm. They're not really any different. We thought they were at first, but they're not actually all that different from ourselves. It's one of the great concerns of the Western Church in the 21st century, is it not? Is the world able to see any meaningful difference in the life and conduct of a professing Christian in comparison with the world? Is there a meaningful difference that they can actually see and hear as they listen to you and me and as they watch you and me? Well, sad to say after 16 years, having begun well, It wasn't so good. The critical question is, if it's not burning brightly, what can be done? Or if you want to change the figure from the lampstand for a second, back to the mountain. If the mountain's there, how do you shift it? How do you shift it? There's only two possible answers to that. Either man shifts it or God shifts it. And of course man tries. How does man try? By might and by power. Of course the text says not by might nor by power. But by my spirit. But the problem is that our first port of call is our might and our power. Might and power are more or less the same words in the Hebrew language. And basically they cover human resources. Strength. Ingenuity, creativity, manpower, technology, anything you like. Some people think revival comes by ripping out pews, putting chairs in, putting a couple of screens in the church. Everything's happening. There's nothing wrong with putting psalms up on a wall. That's fine. But that's not a revival. You can build a stage, you can put a band on it, and everybody enjoys them perform. Maybe more come in the door. It's not a revival. That hasn't advanced the work of God one little bit. Even if it creates a fizz, if it makes bubbles, it's ingenuity, it's using technology, can use plans, methods, committees, get everybody involved in committees. You haven't advanced the work of God one little bit. Why? Because it's might and power. Might and power doesn't do the work of God. It does lots of other things. Builds buildings, builds schools. Doesn't advance the work of God. It's so hard to get that into all our heads. Myself too. Might and power is our first port of call. What can I do about that? How can I change that? And Zerubbabel obviously wasn't immune. He probably tried to coax and to cajole and to reason, to argue, tried everything. Everything in his might. And everything in his power. But the problem with all might and power. Is that it doesn't accomplish the will of God. It doesn't convert your child. It doesn't make you an effective witness. It doesn't empower you as a Christian. So that your words have some effect on other people. It does nothing. Nothing at all. As far as advancing the cause of God. Is concerned. And. It's strange, you know, but Christians can live for a long time on their own might and power. Now, you may say, well, surely that's impossible. No, it's not impossible. A Christian can lapse into a state as a man or woman where they are more or less running on their own steam. They're kept alive because God keeps them alive. The Holy Spirit that was given them is still within their hearts, but his power is not unleashed and it's not dominant they're asleep and everything they do, they do in their own might and in their own power till God wakes them up God has his ways of waking people up but no amount of might and power will do the work of God and Zerubbabel tried everything but no blessing and no power So that's why he needs to take a closer look at the lampstand and see how it works. The key to the lampstand isn't the lampstand itself as such. The key to the lampstand is the two olive trees at each side. And heavy um, olive branches dripping into two pipes. And the oil dripped through these two pipes into a golden bowl. From there... It went into seven sets of seven pipes. And each set of seven was feeding a distinct lamp. Seven, seven, seven. What is all that telling us? Well, it's actually a very simple lesson at the end of the day. We can only shine in the world, in our family, in our home and in the church where God wants us to be, when we are empowered by the spirit of God himself. And once the spirit of God empowers us, mountains do begin to move. We better believe that. If we don't believe that, we're not filled with the spirit of God. Is that not the case? If we were filled with the spirit of God, we would believe that the mountains would would remove. That's why the Lord refers to faith as a grain of mustard seed. The faith that believes... This isn't talking about justifying faith this is talking about the faith that animates you from day to day just just a grain of it fiery grain of mustard seed that believes in God moving mountains will see mountains move our great need is for the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit the temple will be rebuilt again by the Holy Spirit the glory of God will fill the land yes but how do you get that spirit well first of all we get it from Christ. The two olive trees represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Two trees are necessary rather than one because the prophet wants to emphasize that Christ is both the prophet uh, and that, that, that he's both the, sorry, the king and the priest. He is both the king and the priest, and these are the two offices that matter to Zechariah. It would be a digression to go into that but a theme that pervades in Zechariah's prophecy is our Messiah as a kingly priest. A priest upon his throne, chapter 6. You can look it up for yourself. He is the king who empowers us and the priest who cleanses us. He is the source of the oil. It comes from him. And Christ must be lifted up before us as a people. In all his glory and his beauty, in his sufficiency, in his love and in his majesty, Christ must be lifted up before Christians in order for any power to come within. The source is Christ, the source of the oil. The second thing to say is that this power, the spiritual power that reaches you, is not just from, from Christ, but from Christ within. From Christ within. you. Paul tells us that the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. If the Spirit of Christ doesn't dwell in you, you are not his. But the Spirit of Christ dwells in every single Christian. And it's interesting that when Haggai was telling the people to get back to building the temple, he told them that God wanted them to know that his spirit was still in there. God wants you to know that today too. Maybe flat as you are, perhaps even discouraged as you are, maybe your hands are hanging low and your knees are feeble. You feel maybe you've done your best work for the Lord. Maybe you feel you won't accomplish much for the Lord anymore. My spirit remains within you. It's it's not a Christ out there. It is a Christ who is in here because he has inhabited or indwelt, let's say. A better word, he has indwelt your heart by his own Holy Spirit. My spirit dwells in you. So this Holy Spirit that is necessary to move mountains and to shine brightly is already in you. There's a tremendous spiritual and psychological leap that you make when you think of things like that. Every time you think of the source of your help as being out there, it seems distant. But when you think of the source of your help as being already in here, how different that is. How different it is. And not only does Christ provide the power from within, but he provides that power in its fullness. Seven pipes to every lamp. It's not just the oil itself, but the channels through which it comes. There there is a fullness coming to you. A fullness. Seven is fullness, completeness. The fullness of the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You say, well, I I only have a little. No, he's all there. He's all there. He has brought himself personally there. The fullness, the plenitude of his power is within your heart. And you say, well, that's hard for me to believe. Well, believe it. I'm not saying you're experiencing it. Not saying that at all. That's the problem. But it is there. The Holy Spirit in his fullness resides within your heart. And what's more, he is there in order to impart every single thing you need to live a powerful Christian life. That's a thought. Peter gives it to us very forcibly in the second letter that he wrote he says uh, he wants grace and peace to be multiplied to us notice that by the way he wants a multiplication of grace and of peace because he says his divine power now I'm fairly sure that that is a a reference to um, the Holy Spirit himself His divine power has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us. His divine power has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now what a thought that is everything I need to live as God would have me live has already been planted in my heart because the Holy Spirit's here and he's brought it all with (coughs) Him. of course the big question is then why am I this why am I so why is there a mountain and why can't it be moved well let me just say a couple of things in connection with that the first is this you need to ask you need to ask the Holy Spirit you need to ask God that he would unlock or unleash impart these gifts and graces that through the mediatorship of the two olive trees Christ our priest and our king that that oil would be unleashed in our heart, that he would unleash it. He's there. Unleash it. Release that oil. Give me greater portions of love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering, patience, self-control, faith. Give me these things in ever-abundant measure. Ask Was it not in connection with the Holy Spirit. That Jesus said ask and it shall be given you. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Seek and you shall find. Everyone who asks it shall be given to him. Everyone who knocks it shall be opened to him. Whoever seeks will find. Because he says if you know how to give good gifts to your own children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask him. Ask your father for the gifts and the graces that you need to rebuild the temple and to remove the mountains. And he'll give it. Why? Because he wants to. Do you not want to give a gift to your child? The, the Lord said, if, if a child asks bread, will you give him a stone? A loaf of bread looked a bit like a stone in those days. Would you deceive him by giving him a substitute? If he asks for an egg, will you give a scorpion? Because again, a coiled up scorpion looked rather like an egg. Will you give something like it? But that is not the real thing. No, he says you would never dream of doing such a thing. Well, neither will your father give you... A counterfeit if you ask him for the Holy Spirit. Ask. Does that not take us, friends, to the whole question of prayer? Prayer. Prayer is the mark of a church that is living by power. Prayerlessness is the mark of a church that is living by mind and by power. Simple as that. Take it down to you and me, take it down to the ind- individual Christian. If you today are prayerless, it's because you are living by human mind and power. If you are prayerful, it's because you realise there's no mileage in that and you need the Spirit of God. Prayer, really. And only God knows that. Only God sees the closet. Only God sees the secret place. I'll say something about that tonight. But only God sees it, really. And he knows whether you're prayerful or prayerless. And believe me, believe God, believe the Bible. Prayerfulness or prayerlessness tells you all you need to know about yourself, really. Tells you how much you feel you need God in life. People who don't need God in life don't bother praying. You need to ask. The second thing is that you also need to trim the lamp and make sure the pipes are clean. You can't get away from your own responsibility in this. Um, We can't expect the Holy Spirit to be accompanied with our determination to live our lives our way. You clog up the pipes and the oil's not going to make it through. It's good oil, but it's not going to make it through. There is such a thing as branches bearing fruit that become clogged up and they need purging and cleansing. Now, we need God to purge us and cleanse us. Absolutely, we need that. And let's put up the prayer that God would help us turn away from any self-centered, materialistic life that is hindering us in the word of God. Absolutely, let's ask God to do that. But let that be accompanied with our determined resolution that we have nothing more to do with idols. I mean, When Ephraim was turning to God in Hosea 14, Ephraim said, what have I to do anymore with idols? There's our part to play. Clean the lampstand. Clean your heart. Have a look at these things that are clogging up the channels. And push them away. And you may find that next time as you pray, the oil is beginning to flow. That is the message that Zechariah being taught. zerubbabel mm-hmm. being taught. Let me just briefly close with what happened when this vision was communicated. Well, Zerubbabel was a changed man. And the, the people of God were changed men and changed women. Everything changed. Their perspective changed. Instead of saying, blessing was for the past, it's not for the present they began to work again... believing that God was going to beautify the temple... and make his work great in the land. They realized that this plumb line... that seemed to look so ridiculous in Zerubbabel's hand... was suddenly wonderful. Why? Because it was wonderful in God's eyes. They took the message to the heart... that the seven eyes of God... which were going to and fro over the face of the whole earth... including the Persian Empire... in all its might and power... These seven eyes of God were looking at the plumb line in Serubabel's hand, building that temple, and rejoicing in that more than anything else in the world. And we need to believe that, that when something is done for God, in the power of God, doesn't matter how small it looks to yourself or to the world, God delights in it, and he is pleased with it. And when that perspective changes, everything changes with it. And of course it wasn't too long before the temple was finished. And who finished it? Sir He had laid the foundation stone and he put the capstone on it. This is another sermon for another time but some things in this life we don't finish. We sow and another reaps. Sometimes we are given to reap what someone else sowed. There are other things in life that we finish. The work that God has for us in this life We are to finish it. And Serubbabel finished it. Because he rediscovered the power of God. Now. There are mountains before us. I close with this. Uh, But let's resolve. Let me resolve. Myself. And I'm prone to my weaknesses and discouragements. As you are. I I can preach all this to myself. And I do. As well as to you. Let's resolve for just uh, just a mustard seed of fiery faith that lays hold upon God. Let's call upon him to help us and the mountains will be moved. Let us pray. <coughs> o Lord, of God, enable us to remember where the source of our own strength lies. And help us not to look in the wrong places, and especially not to be self-reliant. Oh, bring us back to the throne of grace, where our strength comes, and remind us that the Holy Spirit has been pleased to dwell within our hearts. And help us then to unclog these channels, and to rediscover your power in our lives. Do us good, we pray, in the Redeemer's precious name. Amen. (coughs) Our closing psalm is Psalm 27. Looked the, well, we're familiar with verse 4 anyway. The passionate desire that the psalmist has. This is the ruling passion in his life. One thing I of the Lord desired and will seek to obtain. That all days of my life I may within God's house remain. His glory, his worship matters more to him than anything. Now the psalm closes in verse 11. Instruct me in thy way. To me a leader be in a plain path because of those that hatred bear to me. Give me not to my enemies' will for witnesses that lie against me risen are and such as breathed out cruelty. Now I fainted had unless that I believed had to see the Lord's own goodness in the land of them that living be. Wait on the Lord. Now Waiting is not a passive thing, it's an active thing. And be thou strong, and he shall strength afford unto thine heart. Yea, do thou wait, I say, upon the Lord. And as we sing these words, may we pray them at the same time, that the Lord would fulfill them for us. Let's stand to sing. (coughs) Boa e the fellowship of the Holy Spirit Uh, be with you all.